Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and the producer of our dope theme music. On the heels of an epic, mind-boggling week filled with highly unusual, utterly unexpected, and entirely unprecedented news at the intersection of national security, criminal law, high-stakes politics, and the tawdry, tempestuous, and toxic ecosystem known as Trump World, starting last Monday with the FBI search and seizure operation at Mar-a-Lago and culminating Friday with the unsealing of both the search warrant and the staggering inventory of what the feds found at the former guy's South Florida residence, including a raft of classified documents, some marked top-secret SCI. SCI means sensitive compartmented information, meaning it could only be viewed in certain secure government locations, and with credible reporting claiming that some of the top-secret materials pertain to nuclear weapons. Well, after all of that, we here at Hell and High Water are in deep-dive mode, on the ongoing investigation and unfolding scandal that, according to one of our guests today, now represents, quote, the shortest distance between Donald Trump and an orange jumpsuit. That guest is none other than George Conway, the former star litigator at Wachtell Lipton, Rosen, and Katz, conservative stalwart, who was part of Paula Jones's legal team in her sexual harassment case against Bill Clinton, and the husband to Donald Trump's 2016 campaign manager, Kellyanne Conway, a guy who now bills himself simply as a recovering lawyer, and contributing columnist to the Washington Post, but who's better known to his 2 million Twitter followers and everyone in the political universe as one of the sharpest, most savage, and laugh-out-loud funniest never-Trumpers in the known universe, and also as the doting daddy to a widely and justifiably beloved corgi named Bonnie. Here's a taste of what George had to say about the Donald on the podcast, in particular regarding his irrepressible propensity to flap his jaw indiscriminately, and at this moment, self-destructively at the slightest provocation. Trump is a guy who thinks he can talk his way out of stuff. And um, the lawyers have to try to restrain him. Right now, he has no good lawyers to restrain him. Um, I know that he's got these lawyers who actually got him to do the right thing for himself on Wednesday by pleading the Fifth Amendment 440 times. Um, Somehow between Wednesday and Friday, he forgot, you know, Mr. Person, woman, man, camera, TV forgot about the Fifth Amendment. He probably would be best remaining silent for the rest of his life um, because every time he opens his mouth, he seems to be saying something incriminating. Our other guest today, Asha Rangappa, is just slightly less linguistically colorful than George Conway, and her personal life, unlike his, appears to hold no appeal whatsoever to the tabloids or the Washington Post style section. But her resume is equally glittering, and her insight into this story just as incisive, illuminating, and intriguing. A senior lecturer at the Jackson Institute for Global Affairs at Yale and a former associate dean at Yale Law School, a former special agent in the New York division of the FBI focusing on counterintelligence matters, and a current member of the board of editors at Just Security and the Council on Foreign Relations, Asha has become a familiar face over the past few years as a legal and national security analyst on TV for a while there, just at CNN and now in other cable news precincts too. Prized for her ability to take us all inside the cryptic, cloistered, and sometimes Byzantine world of spooks and special access programs and super secret information, the untimely or unseemly revelation of which could cause a heap of trouble for America on the global stage, which, as it happens, Asha believes is what drove Merrick Garland to take the extraordinary steps he took last week. I think that this involves defense information, defense secrets, um, or valuable foreign intelligence that sources and methods can be revealed. Because 
I think that what would get Merrick Garland to move would have to be national security, urgent national security interests. And to me, the urgency of it, the other tip off to me was that it was the counterintelligence and export control section of DOJ that paid the visit. They handle espionage. They handle things dealing with military commodities, technology. So I felt that, um, you know, that this involved some serious national security uh, interests beyond the Kim Jong-un love letters. That is just a tiny taste, a canapé, a mere sousson of the rich, spicy, multi-course meal we have for you in store today on the podcast. From George and Asha's shared assessment that the DOJ almost certainly has Trump dead to rights on a variety of infractions, from obstructing an ongoing federal investigation to violating the Espionage Act, it's a big deal, for which he could, in theory, face many, many, many years in the federal pokey, to the question of whether, even so... Merrick Garland might choose not to prosecute the disgraced, twice impeached, coup staging, pathologically duplicitous former president, and what the blowback from that decision would be to how these new developments intersect with the investigation of the January 6th insurrection. If you are like me, listening to George and Asha talk through last week's developments and what comes next, you'll be simply stunned and deeply satisfied by the dawning realization that in little more than a blink of an eye, or roughly half a heartbeat, Donald J. Trump has moved from the legal frying pan into the legal fire, a raging, roaring blaze from which he may, for the first time, be unable to emerge unscathed. A comprehensive and autocatalytic imbroglio, otherwise known as hell and high water. Good afternoon. Since I became Attorney General, I have made clear that the Department of Justice will speak through its court filings and its work. Just now, the Justice Department has filed a motion in the Southern District of Florida to unseal a search warrant and property receipt relating to a court-approved search that the FBI conducted earlier this week. That search was of premises located in Florida belonging to the former president. The department filed the motion to make public the warrant and receipt in light of the former president's public confirmation of the search, the surrounding circumstances, and the substantial public interest in this matter. Upholding the rule of law means applying the law evenly, without fear or favor. Under my watch, that is precisely what the Justice Department is doing. That was Attorney General Merrick Garland on Thursday, deep into a week full of unprecedented and extraordinary events uh, emanating from DOJ and the FBI and Mar-a-Lago, three institutions that don't normally come together, but we saw it all last week. Merrick Garland basically saying, hey, we raided Mar-a-Lago. We got a search warrant to do that. We normally wouldn't talk about this stuff, but the former president made this public, so we're now going to say, okay, it happened. And we're going to ask a court in Florida to unseal that warrant so that the public can see what the basis for this search was. That is something that's never happened before in the history of the country. The FBI searching a former president's home and then this warrant being unsealed on Friday, along with the inventory of what the FBI took away from Donald Trump's private club and residence in South Florida. And this is a story of just blockbuster proportions. It came out of nowhere. And so we're going to spend the podcast today talking about it with two of the smartest people I know on this topic, George Conway and Asha Rangappa. George and Asha, I'm glad to have you here with us. And I'm going to start with you, Asha, 
let's think about those documents we got to see on Friday, the warrant and the inventory, Asha, and tell us what they tell you about this case and where we're going. So we learned first the statutes that uh, the Department of Justice is investigating Trump for the violations. And these include 18 U.S.C. 2071, which concerns uh, unauthorized retention of government records. It involves the Espionage Act. This was the blockbuster, Section 793. And this involves retention of national defense information. And it also includes obstruction of justice. So these are... um, so we know kind of what what they're looking for in terms of the elements of the crime and you know what they would need to to get to uh, charge any of those. And then we also got the inventory list, what they took. Right. And it's kind of shocking. Um, many boxes of classified information, including up to the top secret level. Um, TSSCI. SCI is secret compartmentalized information that has to be kept in a secure facility. Um, you know, if you have a TSSCI clearance, you have to go into a special room to view these kinds of documents. And basically, he had them hanging out in the basement of his country club with a $6 padlock on it, um, <laughs> as well as a bunch of other items. Why he has them, we don't know. For example, some type of document concerning um Emmanuel um, Macron um yes, why that's the one, that's that's the one I'm most that's the one I'm most bizarre. intrigued by George I bet you have theories on that I think you know given Trump some of Trump's uh, strange obsessions and predilections I have uh, I have some guesses about that they're not I'm, they're very tawdry but um I'm, that's the one I most want to know about that's how kind of yeah, uh, I, you know, I am. our minds are in the same gutter <laughs> I'm sorry to say yeah but uh I mean it's, it's just stunning it what is, we it, didn't it, find, John, I just want to point yeah, out for listeners, yeah. what we didn't get is the affidavit, right? And right. the affidavit is what the FBI agents would swear to in front of a magistrate attesting to the probable cause that evidence of the crimes that I just mentioned would be found in the locations that they're searching. Right. And I, you know, that... I think initially there was some confusion over whether they were releasing the affidavit, which would have been crazy because, you know, this would have laid out, you know, where did they have an informant? Um, What kinds of classified information was it? You know, was there an urgency that it was going to be destroyed or accessed by unauthorized individuals? But I think that should Garland eventually bring charges. And by the way, I think that is still up in the air. We can talk about that later. Um, You know, more some more of that will be laid out. Well, there's a lot of things to unpack just even in that answer. I mean, there's a lot of the things to unpack from last week. But George, first of all, I want yeah you you, can't, you had that kind of antic George Conway like uh, uh, look in your eyes when you said, "Have you heard the latest?" And I want to before I before anything else, I want to forget about that. What is the latest in your judgment? Well, the latest is something that came out just about an hour ago uh, from the New York Times. It was a New York Times story where the lead was that a Trump lawyer, we don't know who actually certified to the government in writing that all the material had been turned back over to the government earlier this year, uh, which turned a representation that turned out to be false. So that lawyer uh, 
could be in some trouble. I mean, either the lawyer was making an intentionally false statement or the lawyer made a statement, such a representation to the government without doing adequate uh, investigation. And either way, um, that causes trouble for the lawyer and quite likely for also for Trump. But then buried at the end of the story was a little gem. The New York Times reported that Donald J. Trump reached out to Judge Merrick Garland. A person close to Mr. Trump reached out to a Justice Department official to pass along a message from the former president to the attorney general. Mr. Trump wanted Mr. Garland to know he had been checking with, in with people around the country and found them to be enraged by the search. The country is on fire, Mr. Trump said, according to a familiar a person familiar with the exchange. What can I do to reduce the heat? I don't even know what to say about that. He, well, I have a, I have a technical you? legal question that I just tweeted out, which is WTAF. Yes, right. <laughs> You're saying, George, that there's a story in the New York Times on this Saturday, August 13th, that claims that, that, that Donald Trump has reached out directly to the attorney general who is likely to charge him with crime soon. Um, in this, the course of this week, recent, like in, in the last the course couple of days. this week, after the search warrant, but before, shortly before, Mr. Garland had his press conference. Right. And I don't know how to interpret what Trump did other than as a veiled threat. How do you? Uh, say? I, I, I'm not sure how to make it. I, what do you think it is? I think it's. I think it was sheer panic. I think yeah. he knows that Garland knows what he had in this basement. And I think that he believed that it was because of the shooting that morning in Cincinnati and the threats that were coming, you know, to the FBI and the judge, et cetera, that was prompting Garland to have the press conference. And I think he was afraid of what Garland might reveal. And so he was trying to get Garland down from the ledge to get him to stay silent. Because you have to remember that Donald Trump needs an information vacuum in order to operate. The more facts that get out there, the more it narrows his ability to create you know, the, the story that he wants to create. So I think he really didn't want Garland to speak. And he thought if, you know, what can I do to bring down the heat? Meanwhile, by the way, he had released, uh, hadn't at that point, he had already released a copy. No, no, he did that after with the names of the agents that he did that after. But I think, I think the idea was to get Garland to back off. Um, and he knew that at that moment he didn't have the leverage so that he needed to offer something up, um, to do that. What we don't, what we don't know though, from this report, I don't think we know is the exact timing whether or not he knew garland was was going to say something significant or it might have even been before uh, garland held the, the press conference or announced the press conference so i don't know but the but the talking about the, the the country being on fire i mean clearly trump is thinking that this is some kind of leverage over garland so i i do think you may be right that he's trying to get garland to stand down because he so that he can spread his disinformation. But at the same time, I think he's using the fact that uh, the people are upset 
you know, this is the same thing he did on January 6th as a veiled threat to deter Garland from doing what Garland thinks he has to do. And I agree with you, Asha. This is just a mark of profound panic on the part of the former guy. I mean, he, this is just crazy stuff. But Trump, you know, Trump is a guy who thinks he can talk his way out of stuff. And um, the lawyers have to try to restrain him. Right now, he has no good lawyers to restrain him. Um, I know that he's got these lawyers who actually got him to do the right thing for himself on Wednesday by pleading the Fifth Amendment 440 times. Um, somehow, between Wednesday and Friday, he forgot, you know, Mr. Person, Woman, Man, Camera, TV, forgot about the Fifth Amendment. He probably would be best remaining silent for the rest of his life. Um, because every time he opens his mouth, he seems to be saying something incriminating. It's almost like there's not, what else could he say other than something incriminating? Basically everything he does, I mean, you know, if he speaks at all, other than to right. maybe offer appreciation of like how well done the cheeseburger is, he's basically, if he's talking about anything that he's actually doing in the world, it's probably implicating him in something that's- Well, if he talks about the cheeseburger, that, that you, 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 that's evidence that he stole it. Right. So I, right. I don't know, you know. Most of his behavior is either at, at a minimum dubious and at a maximum criminal, essentially. Yeah, I think, you know, he, I was really- to, to George's point, the more that he doubled down on the fact that he was entitled to have that those those documents and property and, and his supporters are rallying around, the more he's helping the Justice Department make the case that this retention was knowing and willful. Right. 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 I mean, his best play would have been, I don't know, I thought we gave everything back. Yeah, you know, I, I talked to lawyers. my lawyers. I wasn't yeah. even there. I, was, I left it in my lawyer's hands, you know, and, and, you know, they came barging in. If they had just told me once more that I still had stuff, I would have gone through it again. But he's not. He's, he's not, now gone not, down and, this road that becomes very difficult to, you know, I declassify the stuff, which means that he was holding on to it and he wanted it. And he right. knew that he was supposed to give it back and he didn't. And I think that willful part is would be the hardest thing to show and he's just making and, the case for them and worse than that his people are talking to the press in ways that are potentially you know incriminating for him because there are there are stories in the post and in the times that report that his aides and advisors presumably lawyers were telling him, just give the stuff back give the stuff back but he decided that he you know wanted to keep some of the stuff because it belonged to him the narcissist, you know, with the five, the five-year-old with the toys doesn't want to give up the toy. And um, it, it puts it on him as the person who was actually deciding what stayed in the basement and what went back to the National Archives. And that means that he personally is liable for whatever violation of Section 793E, uh, the Espionage Act, um, occurred. It's not, he can't put this off on somebody else the way he's put off so many other things on other so, people. So let me ask this question just um, because when we started, I asked Asha, like what, you know, if you look at the warrant, you look at the inventory, what is it? So everybody, I think, agrees on the following things, right? That no reasonable person can any longer believe that this is a nothing burger, right? If you look at the three laws that are invoked, uh, the possible violations of these three laws, particularly the Espionage Act, and then you look at the list of the inventory, the amount of, of, of classified material that was in, uh, that they took out Mar-a-Lago. No one could basically can can be where people were at the beginning of the week. I mean, and I don't think reasonably. I don't think they were being particularly reasonable. But the right at least was like, this could be a nothing burger. There are just it's a technicality. That's we're kind of past that point, right? Do we we agree about that? 
Absolutely. I mean, you know, there, there, there is this problem with overclassification that people always yes. talk about. Yes. But this stuff was top secret yes. and top secret SCI, as, as Asha pointed out. And that stuff is stuff that, you know, that's not like taking a manual out of a tank somewhere uh, at Fort Benning. Okay. This is, this is stuff that went to the president of the United States from the national security advisor that other people probably had to read in the, only in the situation room. And he absconded. Put it in a box. Right. Yes, put it in a box, absconded with it, packed it up, sent it away to, to, to Mar-a-Lago. So we played a little bit of Merrick Garland earlier, and I want to play a little more now. There's so much about the fact you know Garland is so constitutionally conservative, and I don't mean that politically, but a guy who's very buttoned up, very black letter law, policy, precedent, past practice, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, a lot of people thought that he would be constrained and by the rule of the DOJ that they don't discuss ongoing investigations. But in the end, he wasn't. And he came out in that statement that he made on Thursday saying that they were going to ask the court in Florida to unseal the warrant and the inventory. He explained a little bit more. Let's listen to that, and then we'll pick up on the other side. Federal law, longstanding department rules, and our ethical obligations prevent me from providing further details as to the basis of the search at this time. There are, however, certain points I want you to know. First, I personally approved the decision to seek a search warrant in this matter. Second, the department does not take such a decision lightly. Where possible, it is standard practice to seek less intrusive means as an alternative to a search and to narrowly scope any search that is undertaken. So there's Garl. He says, look, you know, he was kind of fighting back against the media narrative that maybe he hadn't personally approved the decision. He says, yes, he did. And then he says, we didn't take this lightly. And this was the only way to get it done. And so it brings me around to the question, Asha, the thing about urgency here and why this had to happen now. And what we then learned was actually in the hall the FBI took away. Were you surprised by the amount of, of secret material and that it, and that the Espionage Act was invoked as part of this? Or, or was that, is that something that you, that was with, well within the ambit of your expectations here? That was my expectation. And I know George and I, you know, are part of conversations off, offline. When other people were saying 2071, I said, this has to be more than that. And I think that this involves defense information, defense secrets, um, or valuable foreign intelligence that sources and methods can be revealed. Because I think that what would get Merrick Garland to move would have to be national security, urgent national security interests. We have seen that he has dragged his feet on January 6th investigation. Yes, the ball is rolling now, but by all, you know, accounts, it's come late. He's still in the early stages of actually looking seriously at Trump on that. So, you know, he's not someone who's ready to bust down the door unless he actually he absolutely has to. And to me, the urgency of it, the other tip off to me was that it was the counterintelligence and export control section of DOJ that paid the visit. They handle espionage. They handle things dealing with military commodities, technology. So I felt that, um, you know, that this involved some serious national security uh, interest beyond the Kim Jong-un love letters. Right. And let's be clear. One thing that the right is very good at is c- kind of raising the bar so that anything below that is supposedly 
excused. It's still bad for him to have had, you know, what, at this point, 40 boxes of presidential records that belong to the United States government and not to him. I mean, he stole that. It makes it worse that much of this was sensitive national security information. So, you know, I think all around um, it's bad, but I wasn't surprised. What about you, George? No, I, I, well, I mean, I was surprised at the search, but after the search, I I assumed that there was some very serious problem here. And I thought it was going to be a combination of two things. And I think I ended up being right. One was this must be some highly sensitive stuff, which makes sense because the president gets the most highly sensitive stuff day by day. And then the other thing I thought was, well, you know, given that there was a back and forth and we didn't know about the subpoena at that point, somebody somebody may have made a false statement about this stuff being returned. And the government found out that, hey, wait a minute, we're being jerked around here. And that seems to be bearing out as well. Uh, And both of those things, I mean, this is look, if he had just taken some personal mementos and things that had to go to the archives that wasn't there weren't sensitive but he had some attachment to and they said no 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 mr president you got to bring give it back and he, and it was 20 boxes and he gave it back it wouldn't have been a problem all right it would have been settled and it wouldn't have gone to the justice department but the fact of the matter is what goes to pro- prosecutorial discretion here is exactly how much stuff it was how mm. sensitive it was and his the egregiousness of the conduct in withholding the materials and if it involves false representations and repeated attempts to evade or deceive the national archives and to fail to respond to us i guess a grand jury subpoena or i don't know what kind of subpoena it was um you know he's really really on, on thin ice here because all of it there's really it becomes very difficult to justify not prosecuting him I mean, there was this woman last year who was a DOD employee who was seconded to the Manila embassy, the U.S. embassy in Manila. Right. And she brought home to her apartment some some classified academic theses because she was writing a classified academic thesis yeah. of her, her own, and she wanted to use these two as a model. She didn't want it. She wasn't, there were no, no big secrets there to sell, but it, they were classified. And then some, you know, she held a party for her friends at the embassy, and somebody went into her bedroom, I guess to use the, the, the toilet or something, and saw the classified documents and ratted her out. Yeah. And she ended up having to do three months in jail. And this, 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 whatever this was, and it wasn't, it, she wasn't motivated by any, anything nefarious, but whatever this was could not possibly have the sensitivity um, by a, two orders of magnitude or three or more as the stuff that we're talking about here, which apparently, according to the Washington Post, involved nuclear weapons. Right. So I want to, so I want to come back. So I want to come back to that in a second, but I want to get, Asha, I want to ask you this question because it's just, it was one of the many things in your first statement that I wanted to return to. If you think about the three statutes that are, that are invoked in the warrants by Judge Reinhardt and by the DOJ, we all agree that the Espionage Act is like the big kahuna in that group. But of the other two, and again, I can't cite the statutes because unlike the two of you, I'm not a lawyer and I don't, those, all those numbers confuse me. But the one that's the one, the one that was the least surprising, which is the one that basically says he took documents that he shouldn't have taken, right? Is it not clear as we sit here now that he's obviously broken that law? I mean, they found these top secret documents, right? I mean, right. that just, it doesn't even seem like there's a case to make there. They have now proven their case. They have retrieved these documents that should not have left. And it seems like he is in, that that case is already basically made. 
Yeah. So that yeah, so then, race ipsa loquitur, as they say yeah. in the law, hey, like it speaks for yeah. itself that these were located on the premises. Right. There may right. be, based on that statute, and if you were to take some kind of very textual reading, um, it talks about records that are deposited or filed with, you know, an office or official. And, you know, there, there's a little bit of an out maybe on kind of just a statutory reading on whether it applies to the president. Da, 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 da. Right. But yes, the spirit of that law has clearly been violated. There's no question about that. The presidents, and I think the presidents su- aren't supposed to take secret. I mean, for whatever you think about, like the thing about, about Emmanuel Macron or about something about Roger Stone's uh, clemency uh, paperwork, you know, the, as far as I know, at least as my experience in covering politics for the last 30 years, is that presidents, when they end, are not supposed to take classified material home with them. That's just, that's like, you know, that's not, that's not even like a hard call. Yeah. And, and let's talk about that for a second. Um, you know, Trump didn't, Trump had a security clearance only by virtue of his office. Right. He did not undergo a background check. Right. He did not have any kind of suitability review. He became president. And as a result of that, he was able to access this information. That ended at 11.59 a.m. on January 20th, 2021. President Biden did not extend that security clearance. The only reason to extend it is if he's going to get continued classified briefings. And Biden said (laughs) no. So he was just an ordinary dude. Um, who walked off with right. classified documents. And just to the point about the level, you know, if we are, it can get worse in two right. ways. First, there's a, actually a level of classification beyond TSSCI, which involves restricted data. Right. Um, and typically, I think, by definition, nuclear secrets are restricted data. And I think they're called something like special access programs, which you have to be read into. Right. Um, I'm, you know, I think that this goes beyond even skiff level stuff. I'm not, you know, a nuclear expert, but, um, that's really, really bad if he had that stuff. And we don't know who else accessed this information. Um, one of the things we know is that DOJ subpoenaed surveillance footage, which I, uh, you know, if I, as an investigator, I would say they were looking to see who had access to the rooms where this was located. Maybe they had specific people that they were looking out for who they believe were accessing it. And that's a big, big problem because then you go beyond just willful retention and failure to deliver the documents to actually transmitting national defense information to people who are unauthorized yeah. to receive it. As though the basement there was a dead drop of some sort. I mean, that's an incredible, that would be an incredible thing. And we don't know what we don't know facts to establish that yet. But to go back to the statute, saying he's right. dead to rights on seven on seven ninety three e. Just okay, say what that is. Say what that is in English. That is, it's a, it's entitled gathering, transmitting, or losing defense information, and it's a section in right. the Espionage Act that we've been right. talking about. And seven ninety three e says, whoever having unauthorized possession. Unauthorized possession. Well, as Asha says, as of eleven fifty nine fifty nine Eastern Eastern Time on on, on January twentieth two thousand twenty one, he was un, in unauthorized possession of these materials. Right. And then it's any document, you know, blueprint, plan, blah blah blah, anything of any sort. Um, 
relating, containing information to the, relating to the national defense, which information the possessor has reason to believe could be used to the injury of the United States or to the advantage of any foreign nation. Okay, well, if, if you know, the classification actually doesn't matter in the sense right. that it's not right. required. Right. But if this stuff is classified, it certainly falls into this category. And then it says, if you know, if you willfully retain the same and fail to deliver it to the officer, officer or employee of the United States entitled to receive it, aka the archivist of the United States, and he refused to do that, I mean, he's he's right there. He's dead to rights. That's a ten-year sentence for each document. Right. Okay. He, they have him dead to rights if the facts are as they have been reported. And the question is. Are you know are they going to exercise their prosecutorial discretion in his favor or not? And the question that question is going to turn on how serious, how bad uh, the the risks were here, how how sensitive these documents were, how and how much he jerked them or, and his lawyers jerked the government around, and it's not looking good for him. All right, we're going to take a quick break right now and we'll go up and listen to some advertising. We'll be right back after these messages with more Ashurangapa and George Conway here on Hell on High Water. And we're back on Hell and High Water with Ashi Rangappa and George Conway. And I, I want to start off this block here with a little more sound. We've heard from Merrick Garland. Here's another key figure in federal law enforcement, Christopher Wray, the director of the FBI, who was asked by reporters in the middle of the week about the kind of crazy unfolding environment in which all this is taking place, a world where much of the Republican Party rallied around Donald Trump, almost all of it, including not just saying... Donald Trump is this is bad or wrong and and what is the DOJ doing but also saying federal law enforcement is out of control the FBI is become like the Gestapo etc cetera, etc cetera. the ton just a tidal wave of negative rhetoric against law enforcement and Chris Ferre is asked about the fact that the FBI said yes there's an actual increase in the amount of threats that FBI agents are facing and actual violence he's asked about that by a reporter in a press conference this is what Chris Ferre had to say any threats made against law enforcement, including the men and women of the FBI, are deplorable and dangerous. Last year, uh, there were 73 law enforcement officers around this country who were killed in the line of duty, as in murdered in the line of duty. That's the highest number since 9-11. Uh, so the men and women of law enforcement, including the men and women of the FBI, make heroic sacrifices for uh, everyone in this country. Uh, and it takes an incredibly special person to be willing to get up every day and give his or her life, sacrifice his or her life for a total stranger. Uh, and so it's important uh, that we view the men and women of law enforcement as people, uh, as a resource to cherish. So Asha, this has been a problem for a while that there's been this increasing tide of anti-law enforcement rhetoric on the right. Mara Garland had to know that this was going to be the reaction to the decision. He couldn't have believed that it wasn't going to eventually get out that the FBI had searched Mar-a-Lago, the home of former president. It was going to incite an enormous explosion of political controversy. And yet he decided to do it. So Asha, that Christopher Ray sound echoes something that Garland himself said in his press conference on Thursday, both of them rising to the defense of 
federal law enforcement and dealing with all of these threats that have arisen in this atmosphere of very pitched rhetoric. But clearly it was the case that the DOJ thought that it had to move. It has now moved. And yet at the very beginning of the podcast, you alluded to the notion that you weren't completely sure that Merrick Garland would end up charging Trump of crimes here. And I want to get back to that. And part of why I was asking the question I asked before, where it seems like, as George said, uh, regarding the Espionage Act, but I was saying regarding another one of the statutes, the prima facie evidence suggests he's guilty. So why, you know, across the board here, it looks like there's a very strong case that the government has. So why do you have uncertainty? I know there's prosecutorial discretion. I know you don't have to charge everybody. Yep. But what would what would make Merrick Garland decide to court all of this controversy, do all of this stuff that yep. he never wants to get involved in, create this giant political yep. firestorm if your intent was not to charge the guy in the end? Good point. Yeah. And I think this is where you get into complicated gray areas when you're dealing with counterintelligence investigations. So the, you know, espionage, mishandling of classified information, there's a few criminal violations which are actually handled by the counterintelligence division of the FBI. Most of them are handled by, you know, most regular crimes are handled by the criminal division, but these are handled by the counterintelligence division because often the evidence is coming from sensitive sources and methods, FISA, things like that, which means that there are dual interests involved. There's the national security interest, and then there are your traditional criminal interests of deterrence, punishment, et cetera, et cetera. I think that the national security interest was the paramount one here. It was the danger posed by having these documents in an unsecure location where they could be accessed by unauthorized individuals. And so if that's what was motivating Garland, if that's what pushed him over the edge beyond his normal cautiousness to go in and get them, and this right. was first and foremost a surgical search and retrieval operation to get these documents out of the hands of Donald Trump and Mar-a-Lago and put them where they need they should be and assess the damage. He may decide, look, okay, mission accomplished. I've got other fish to fry. We've got this whole other investigation. I don't have enough, you know, people on my team to to do this. Um, I'm gonna move on to, you know, January 6th or whatever. Um, obviously that is going is not going to be a good look to have gone through this and then not bring charges. But I think that we need to entertain that as a possibility because punishing Trump for his behavior is a different goal than, you know, getting and securing these documents. I completely agree with George that this behavior is so egregious that he should be punished. Um, and I think it rises to the level that a former president should be right. punished for. But I'd be interested. I mean, I think this really depends on does Garland have the stomach to right. well, do that's, this? And I'm well, that's, not sure. I think it's getting more towards right. that. The more we, right. that comes right. out about the types of things that are there, I think so, it's So let me likely. ask you, George, about this. Okay, so the night before we got the warrant, the warrant was actually unsealed on Friday. You had these two pieces of reporting, one in the Washington Post, one in the New York Times. The Washington Post reporting says nuclear stuff is involved in this. It's a little vague about whether it's our, uh, the United States, our United States is nuclear or somebody else's. Right. Uh, and then you get the, the the New York Times that talks about something you guys have raised on the, on the podcast here, which is the notion of special access programs, right? I'm correct, I believe, in saying that on the basis of what we now know, there's nothing in the inventory that either confirms or denies that that either of those two things are involved. Is that right? Right, but it's all consistent. I mean, there's not. It's, it's it could it's all consistent. It could be. We don't know that it is, but it could be. There's nothing in that inventory that says, "Oh no, those that reporting is wrong." Right. Right. 
what's your what's your sense of it um on two levels one would it would it would it knowing being a student of donald trump in the way that you are um does that seem plausible to you that those kinds of things are involved and two this is wholly speculative but i do think it matters and it's the thing we talk about a lot now like what would be the motive on, on that. I mean, do you think that self-enrichment would be their motive? There are people who have very strong views that that's obviously the case or obviously not the case, but I'm curious about it. You know, you, again, you've put a lot of thought into Donald Trump's psyche. Does Donald Trump leave the White House, take nuclear secrets and try to sell them? Is that a plausible scenario? Look, anything is possible with this guy. You cannot discount any possibility, but the simplest, I mean, you, you, you can apply Oxum's razor to Donald Trump's personality disorders. Right. Okay. And he's just, he is a malignant narcissist. He's a narcissist and a sociopath. Everything, as a narcissist, everything belongs to him. Everything should belong to him. He's entitled to everything. And then as a sociopath, he's very impulsive and he's he 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 doesn't believe in anyone else's rights but his and so he took the stuff because he wanted to he wanted to have the stuff it was my stuff i thought it's interesting i want it it's mine me 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 and that's why he took it i think um now it could be that uh, maybe maybe putin really does have something on him and this was part of the deal way back long ago but i don't, I don't know that, that that's true i mean it could be anything is possible again with this guy but i, I just think it's more just to say this stuff is mine because and and the presidency was mine the generals across the river in that that funny shaped building are mine um and 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 everything is mine and that's just his mentality and i don't right. think he, you know, the notion that he has some kind of elaborate plan, like these people out in Annapolis who sold nuclear submarine secrets right. to to the FBI, um, I, and he's not capable of that. He's not <laughs> smart enough to do that. He doesn't have the foresight to do that. He doesn't have the patience for elaborate plans. The man cannot think beyond the, you know, five minutes ahead. Of, he's he's a, he's a child. Right. You know, and, and people who remember, it's like that that quote that I think was in Politico that became famous three years ago, three, four years ago, where, you know, everybody thinks he's playing, you know, multidimensional chess, but he's really just eating the pieces. And that's all he <laughs> ever does. And that's what he, he he was just eating the pieces here like he does. And he can't help himself. And he and that's now he's floundering about because he kind of realizes he's in deep shit. And he, you know, he's just saying one thing after the other, trying to figure out what's going to stick. I declassified this stuff by merely by taking it up to the to the residents. I, um, you know, it, it's he's just making stuff up as he goes along. It's there's no plan, no thought, and right. he, it's completely irrational because he is a stupid sociopath. It's that simple. So do, and, can I can I just add on to yeah. what George said? Yeah. That even if I, I think we need to understand that he doesn't need to have intended to share it, you know, for it to be a na- uh, for it to, for his possession of it for his possession of it to be a national security risk. Well, look, I mean, even if he took it for vanity reasons, right. if I'm a foreign intelligence service, if I am Russia, if I am Iran, Saudi Arabia, China, what's what am I going to do? I'm going to recruit people at Mar-a-Lago who have access. I mean, first of all, it's been reported that this these documents are there. I mean, everybody right. knows that they've right. been sitting there. 
you're going to recruit people who have access, whose uh, presence is going to get past a secret service, and you're going to go down into the room, uh, which apparently until June was not even secured with a padlock, and, you know, photograph, do whatever you're going to do and walk out. I mean, you know, I think that he has facilitated the access by unauthorized individuals, which, by the way, also falls in. The yeah, and he's the perfect act. mark. I mean, so, so my point is, I think like he didn't need to have be, you know, have a plan to sell them for them to be potentially already in right. the wrong hands and potentially in the hands of foreign governments. I will say that I'll take that on top of the vanity. I would say that Trump never does anything um, that doesn't benefit him somehow. So, you know, he clearly saw that these were beneficial for him to have. And it brings me to the obstruction charge, I think, likely has to do with concealment rather than destruction. Because obviously, if he didn't give them back, he wanted to keep them. And I don't think he, you know, if he was willing to destroy them, then why not just give them back? So I think he he kept them. He kept them for a reason. Um, Best case scenario, he just thinks, you know, Nuclear and, you know, the map of, you know, Iran's nuclear facility is super cool. Uh, worst case scenario is that he believes that they have some kind of value that he can use at some point to benefit himself. And, you know, he could bring he could bring guests downstairs and show them this stuff to be and play the big shot. But George, do you I should just laid out her case for why it wasn't absolutely a slam dunk, even though he's clearly violated the law, why he might not get charged is your what's your judgment on that? As you sit here now, are you, do you expect him to, to face charges or do you think there's still some reasonable chance that because of prosecutorial discretion that somehow he would end up he could end up wriggling out of these charges? I think it's going to be very hard not to prosecute him because I think you, people are going to start. I think we're going to start to see reporting on what, ha- what has happened to all these other cases. Like the guy who took a, a selfie on a nuclear submarine, the, the sailor, you know, he went to jail. Right. I mean, there's so many people just who've gone to jail for mishandling classified information of much less significance and scope. I mean, you know, Sandy Berger didn't get jail time, but he, he, got, he got a misdemeanor conviction, I think, um, for sticking that document in his socks. Well, think of how many socks it would have taken to haul all this stuff to, to Mar-a-Lago. And I mean, I don't know how you don't prosecute him if the facts turn out the way they look like they are going to turn out. Now, maybe he gets off because maybe there's some kind of a deal he can cut, a Spiro Agnew um, kind of deal where he never does anything again and and, and never darkens the door of any, I don't know, anywhere in America ever again. I don't I don't know. Um, But I just think it's going to be very, very difficult if the if the facts turn out and keep getting worse, as they seem to keep getting worse, um, not to prosecute. So, Asha, I know you got to go. So I want to ask you, I want to do one thing before you go, just because you are someone who actually worked at the FBI for a period of time. And this week, as I was funny, I was on TV at the end of on Friday talking to Michael Beschloss and we were talking about, you know, so this thing happened at Mar-a-Lago, history unprecedented, the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, a big deal at the end of the week by Joe Biden, maybe, you know, transformative in terms of his politics. But what I will remember from this week more than anything was watching the right just in a kind of reflexive, I would say it's, it's some, to some extent self-destructive way, following Trump down a path they had no idea where it was going to lead them and saying some of the most incredibly provocative, incendiary and dangerous things that, that about law enforcement in general and particularly about the FBI, provoking Merrick Garland to come out and, and defend the FBI, provoking Chris Ray to say the deplorable and dangerous were his words. Uh, Garland called the, uh, the attacks unfounded. 
I'm going to play two little pieces of sound, both from the recount, little supercuts. One of them is of Republican elected officials, and then some Republicans, some people in the right wing fever swamp of media. Uh, and then I want to hear what you have to say about it as someone who once worked for the FBI. Let's start with the right wing media people bashing the FBI. This is some third world bullshit. Let me say it again, third world bullshit. They will break down your front door, they will spy on your text. Think about what they could do to you. This is the worst attack on this republic in modern history. And this is a chilling moment in the country's history. This is an abomination. All of them have to be held accountable. Banana Republic. The Banana, Banana Republic. Is a declaration of war. The assassination of President Trump. I, I, think, I think everything's on the table. I am deathly afraid for Donald Trump. I would not put assassination behind these people. So Dan Bonino, Sean Hannity, Laura Trump, Mark Levin, Buck Sexton, Stephen Miller, Laura Ingram, Seb Gorka, Steve Bannon, and Bernard Carrick um, in that cut. Let's now play number four. Uh, these are all Republican elected officials going after the FBI. The FBI and the uh, Department of Justice are going to give Trump a fair and impartial firing squad. The DOJ resembles the Gestapo more than a justice-seeking agency, and we are ready for battle. Do I know that the boxes of material they took from Mar-a-Lago, that they won't put things in those boxes to entrap him? We have to defund and make cuts in the Department of Justice. Call up Christopher Ray. call up Mara Garland, bring him in front of the House Judiciary Committee. It's like what we thought about the Gestapo and people like that. The American people see it for what it is. Uh, they 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 get it. They they know what's going on here, and that's why the outrage is is larger than I've ever felt before. So I'll just say, United States Senator John Kennedy, Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, Senator Rand Paul, Senator Tim Scott, Senator Ron Johnson, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, and Jim Jordan, Senator Rick Scott, and Congressman Jim Banks. All those elected officials. Not even all the just crazy House people. A lot of senators on that list, right? Those are long. We could have made them go for another five minutes in supercut fashion. Like there is just a lot of people saying a lot of crazy inflammatory shit this week. I mean, again, we saw again Ray and Garland react to it. I just am curious about a personal level. What is it like from the people you still know in the bureau and having worked at the FBI? What's it? I just never imagine we get to a place like this, and it must be scary if you're an FBI agent. We know the ones who raided Mar-a-Lago are being sought and threatened with violence. I mean, you know, this is a continuation of what we saw, the transformation that we happened during the Mueller investigation. And I just think it's important to go back and remember. I mean, it's I mean, it's actually hard for me to remember when Trump fired James Comey. That was just a mind blowing moment. Everyone was gobsmacked because I think that at that moment in time, everyone, Democrat and Republican, understood that the president was not above the law. Even Trump said, I'm effed when he found out that a special counsel had been um, appointed. And I just think that the psyop that has been conducted on the American people and especially on the on the right and the far right to delegitimize law enforcement and, uh, you know, foster mistrust in judges and the rule of law has been so profound and, frankly, incredibly successful. I mean, Trump's violation, his crime, is 
exactly what Hillary Clinton was being investigated for. It is far worse. I mean, she was doing it in the course of like normal business, uh, you know, with other people as she was a government employee with clearances. I mean, it's hard for me to understand how anyone with a straight face who was chanting lock her up could then um, believe that this is somehow an unwarranted investigation. But I think what's striking to me, and this goes to, you know, I'm, I'm sure George has more to say about this, is there is not even a willingness to entertain at all that Trump may have done anything wrong. In other words, the immediate uh, conclusion is that, you know, he's being framed. And it's just so weird because it's he's so I mean, I guess it's just what they have to do. Right. Because he's so obviously, um, you know, uh dishonest and and able to do these things. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't understand how I can't believe that they actually believe this. Yeah, they don't. I mean, I mean, you know, we we saw the text. We saw the text of Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram and and other people on January 6th. They know he's a bad guy. They know he's a guy who's out of control, who has mental issues. They know um, he does things that are crazy and unwise. But this is part of the this is part of the great grift, the great fraud, the everything. All of these people, their livelihoods and their careers are tied up into in into this maintenance of the myth that Donald Trump is some virtuous and sane person and competent person and who, who that, that, that the deep state is out to get. And right. and that you know that's that's what drives Fox's ratings. So that's why you get it every night from Tucker Carlson, from from Sean Hannity, from Laura Ingram. That's where you get stuff from Mark Levin. And then you know the, these people who 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 are elected, uh, even the senators who only go up every six years. They you know they if if they say one thing contrary to to what the Donald Trump line is, you know like Lindy Graham did, he gets accosted at an airport. Right. And so we they've created this environment where they cannot wait and accept the truth. They deny the obvious. They deny it, it, it is an it is a malignant normality, uh, 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 as psychologists would call it, that where where absolute absolute depravity becomes normal and they pretend it doesn't exist. All right. We are going to take one more quick break. It will also be the break after which we will lose Asha. Asha, I'm really grateful you decided to do the podcast. You have, I believe, a sick cat and that cat needs to get to the vet. And God knows I am an animal lover of the highest caliber. So look, when the pet calls and and is in need, you got to attend to the pet. And especially if the vet is on the docket, you got to get that cat over there and do it quickly. Thank you for spending some time with us. We'll come back after the break. It'll just be me and George for the last part of Hell and Hot Water. And we are back with George Conway solo here on Hell and High Water. And George, we can go one-on-one here and cover some of these topics that are probably in some ways beneath Asha, who has less of a taste maybe for some of the brass knuckle politics that you have and that I have. And speaking of brass knuckles and knuckles dragging on the ground, I want to start by playing a little bit of Steve Bannon. We've already talked about some of the crazy shit that the right was saying over the course of last week. But at the far end of the extreme, as usual, is Bannon, who doesn't just do this on his own podcast, which is a dark enough place to begin with. He decides to go really into the pits of hell and goes on Infowars with Alex Jones, 
and let's loose with not just an attack of extraordinary scathingness on the FBI and the DOJ, but also suggests in the process that it's possible that what he likes to call the deep state is aiming to assassinate Donald Trump. Let's listen to that. The FBI and the DOJ are essentially lawless criminal organizations. And I agree. I do not think it's beyond uh, this administrative state and their deep state apparatus to, to actually try to uh, work on the assassination of President Trump. I, I think I think everything's on the table. I think his security ought to be at the highest it's ever been. And, and honestly, I think he ought to, and I think he should have flown down in Mar-a-Lago this morning, walked out there at noon today and said, hey, I'm running for president of the United States. Suck on that. You know, we're both tempted in some ways to laugh at Bannon when he says stuff like this, because it's so idiotic and so ludicrous and so obviously done for effect. Two clowns talking clownishly about things that have no basis in reality. So we could be tempted to laugh here on the other hand, and then kind of the ending it with a suck on that, you know, whatever. If you think about what the effect of this is out in the MAGA base and other places in the country, it's a different story. The notion that like the deep state is going to assassinate Trump is it's, is in itself a, a very provocative, a super provocative incendiary thing to say. And we know that the judge, Judge Reinhardt, you know, uh, in Florida has been doxxed and you get Brian Kilmeade on Fox News putting his head, his superimposing his head on Jeffrey Epstein's body. The FBI agents who carried out the Mar-a-Lago thing, their names, people are talking about trying to kill them. Is it really the case that these people just don't care if blood is spilled as a result of some of this language, these ideas that they have put into the bloodstream, are they just like, I don't give a fuck? Donald Trump doesn't. And one of the things that sociopaths do is they put themselves and other people at risk. Right. And they don't care. So Donald Trump is perfectly happy to bring in the people with weapons to his rally and then send them up to Capitol Hill because whatever they do is fine with him. He doesn't you know, he has no moral conscience and it doesn't bother him that somebody might get killed on his behalf. And, you know, I mean, there was this great profile of Bannon by Jennifer Senor in The Atlantic a month or so ago, a month or two ago. Yeah. And, you know, he's of the same ilk. Right. He does not care about the truth. He does not care if there is violence. He affirmatively probably wants violence. Hmm. He wants disorder. He wants chaos. He wants to destroy. Okay. Yeah. Also sociopathic. Right. And 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 these people in you know the the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Lauren Boberts, what hap what has happened to the Republican Party is it it is driven by sociopaths at this point. Right. So and and, and, and that's and that that's a terrifying thing. And the norm the people who would be relatively normal, um, in in a normal environment, uh, will you know are are basically held hostage by these people and they're afraid of these people and they won't do anything about them and they play along. It was interesting to me that there was reporting at toward the end of the week where all of these guys had gone and said all this crazy stuff about, right. I mean, guys, I'm talking about right-wing media and right-wing uh, Republican electeds who all basically had, had gotten, had gone way out on a limb, attacked the FBI, attacked the DOJ, attacked everybody. And then two things happened. One was the situation in Cincinnati where a shooter showed up. Um, and the other was, well, Garland decided to come out and say that, there, that he was going to unseal the warrant. And then the third was, you started to get a sense that maybe this was really serious. And there was this weird kind of like student body right, like the memo went out from Trump world 
maybe we should start attacking like let, let's maybe lay off law enforcement a little bit right and we we saw reporting of that kind so suddenly steve Ducey is arguing with steve scalise on Fox and friends and saying what happened to back the blue right and everybody starts attacking the irs instead of instead of the fbi all of a sudden like in one day it all changed right right do you think that there was a moment at the end of the week last week where they sort of looked up a lot of these Republicans, especially the electeds, especially the ones in the Senate, who looked up and said, this could be like the Ukraine-Russia thing again. We like Our politics will be affected in a very bad way if, right. we, we, if we go too far here. Trump, yeah. if, we, if we end up being pro-Russia in, Ukra- in the Ukraine fight, that is a, that's a bridge too far for us. And if it turns out that Donald Trump has nuclear secrets at Mar-a-Lago and we've been attacking the DOJ and the FBI that will be a bridge too far to us too with our voters. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was a report, I think uh, Maggie Haberman and her colleagues at the New York Times, I think reported something to the effect that people in Donald Trump's circle were warning GOP elected officials to kind of stand down a little bit and not, not go too far in attacking the DOJ and the FBI because there was going to be more coming out on this. I think, and... In fact, there was going to be a House Freedom Caucus on Friday morning. press conference on Friday morning that got canceled. And I can't imagine it was it was because they had some kind of moral qualms. I think they realized maybe maybe they don't want to go so far out on a limb. And I think that's probably wise. I mean, the norm the, the normal thing to do if you were a responsible partisan, even a partisan, would yeah. be to say, these are these are disturbing allegations. Uh, I certainly hope they're not true. We simply have to let the legal process uh, play out, and and then we'll learn the facts, and then we'll be able to make a judgment. It's what they should have done. Uh, you mentioned Ukraine. That's exactly what the Republicans should have done with regard to Ukraine. But instead, you know, they attack the they attack the investigation from the beginning. They attack the the uh, witnesses. And basically, the, you know, the Senate has it made clear that they were never going to convict even before they heard the evidence. Um, so, I, you know, I, it's not I think they they realize this may be the one and yeah. they probably want to hold their fire a little bit. But that doesn't that's not going to keep people on Newsmax and it's not sure. going to keep uh Sean Hannity and certainly Tucker Carlson and other people, Mark Levin, from going out and making wild accusations from day to day. Yes, and and like and as you said a second ago, you and, know, and Marjorie Taylor Greene. And, yes, yeah, sure, right. yes. So, but but I again, I, I just I do want to before I ask you a question about Steve Bannon because I there is a, a thing that went I mean really went into the wild into the wild last week. It is, I don't know. It's like. The fact that so much of the Republican Party across the spectrum, again, you know, a couple of people like Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell sort of did what you just said a second ago. Burden of proof is high on the DOJ. I hope they made, you know, they got to come out. They got to be more transparent, but didn't say things like, you know, Gestapo, right? Right. But that's so many people in the party would go to, to claim the FBI manufactured evidence. They planted evidence, all of which, again, got, they all look like asses by the end of the week, right? Because Donald right. Trump's lawyer, one of those idiot lawyers goes on TV and goes, Oh no, he, he was watching on the closed circuit the whole time from New York, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But but so they all look like like idiots. But there is their easy reflex to attack the FBI's 
as a malign, malignant, uh, Gestapo-like agency. I just think it's like it's like there is an element at which the Republican Party now is like perfectly willing to be at war with institutions that used to be not just accepted but revered by the American right. Yep. I mean, now they're like at war with the Department right. of Justice, the Attorney General, the FBI, everybody in law enforcement, everyone in intelligence. I feel like it seems like almost as pernicious as anything, even more in some ways than Trump himself, is that Trump has done this to the Republican Party. Right. Well, I mean, you know, Trump, Trump is as much a symptom as he is a cause of all of this. I mean, right. he's just the metastasis of the work, the, you know, there are always bad tendencies on the right. There are bad tendencies on the left, but they didn't, they don't, you know, they could metastasize. They haven't. On the right, you know, there are always this undercurrent of, 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 of nuttiness that was sort of kept in a closet. And now Donald Trump has opened the closet and set, set the example for everyone to come out and behave just the way he did, does. And that is to basically deny reality, lie about everything, attack institutions, um, be completely hypocritical about you know, what, what, what he does versus what other people do, uh, make false equivalences, and, and, and so on. And it's just, it, it is so damaging to our system where you, where you simply, everybody views everything through a partisan prism and they, they, you can't trust the rule, you can't trust courts, you can't trust the, the government to do anything proper and right. Now, that doesn't mean that the government always does things that's prop, that is proper and right, but you know, it's not everything is not even close. Not, is not a, it's all not a giant conspiracy against Donald Trump. Right, but here's the thing that I, I want you to opine about which is that I would say that, well, I know this for it to be true. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah, you, read, you, you live in this world and you, and you, read, the, you, read, all the, you read the press on these things, right? Mo from, from Monday night when the Mar-a-Lago thing came to conclusion to Trump deciding to publicize it himself rather than the OJ didn't want to, he decided to make it public. He decided he could make it public and there was some way in which he could exploit that for political gain. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. It, on any one of those days, the, Donald Trump thought he was winning. Like every, all of this stuff's happening. We're sort we're talking about how the walls are closing in, you know, the, the civil case in New York, the January 6th investigation, the Georgia investigation, this thing. Now the legal walls are closing in. I don't think we're wrong. I think they are. But right. Trump's perception is that this Mar-a-Lago raid was good for him, that, 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 that he benefited from it. You have DeSantis people going, well, we can't run against Trump now. I mean, He's consolidated the Republican Party behind him. It's the best thing that's ever happened to Donald Trump if, he, if, if what he wants is to be the Republican nominee in 2024. That is the conventional wisdom among people who know the right well. It is what you hear from Republicans, everyone you talk to in Republican politics. It's clearly what Trump thinks. That's the thing I want you to opine on. Like, I mean, yes, of course, if he ends up in jail, you know, that, that will complicate these things for him. But it is an amazing thing that that's where we are right now, that this could be seen not just inside Donald Trump's like addled mind, but by basically everybody who studies Republican stuff as, oh yeah, this is good for him. Yeah, because everything has become partisan. Facts, law, reality is all partisan. It's, you know, we don't, these people don't care what the facts are. They don't care what the laws are. They don't care about anything other than what's good for Donald Trump and them and what's bad for the other side. So, 
Sure, this is good for Donald Trump because it rallies people to his, to, to his side. And it rallies the core of the Republican Party to his side. And they don't want to, they, you know, they're not going to listen to this podcast. They're not going to look at the evidence against Donald Trump. Um, so they're going to, they're, they're going to rally around him. And he's absolutely right. The worse it gets for him, the stronger his hold on the Republican Party could actually be. The more he is in legal jeopardy, the stronger his hold on the Republican Party could be. That's very likely the case. And he can, you know, and, th and that's the sort of the, the irony about this is that he can be at once absolutely, as you and I were discussing with Asha, terrified about the prospect right. of potentially being subjected to criminal responsibility uh, for his criminal acts, and at the same time, um, believing that somehow it's, he's going to rise ascendant because of it. And that's, but that's how the, the, the pathological, narcissistic, malignant, narcissistic mind works. Right. You know, I mean, Hitler, uh, I, I, I always think of the, this movie, the movie Downfall. Yeah. Watching the movie Downfall um, has, has, has just reminded me so much of the Trump White House. It's, about the, it's, a, it's a German movie sub, with sub subtitles um, about the last 10 days in the Fuhrer bunker. And, 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 and Hitler would go from, you know, one moment say, thinking it's, it's a complete disaster, we're done, to we will, we will have a counterattack and we will, we will be backing Ukraine um, and stealing the oil fields and, yeah. in, the, in, 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 in the caucuses, um, you know, in a, in a matter of weeks. Okay, he's just, this is, this, the, this is the distorted mind um, of, 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 of a narcissistic sociopath. But, yeah, but let me, yes or no, you, you think he's going to run for re-election? Or run uh, for I election think he, again? Uh, you think uh, he's going to uh, yes. run? Yes. Ab absolutely, and, because I think he thinks that's his best defense right. against you, any kind of potential uh, liability, criminal, civil, otherwise. And it was for four years. It actually was. Can you imagine him running under indictment? Yes. Can you imagine him being nominated under indictment? Hmm, I don't know. Um, anything is possible. Uh, again, he doesn't, you know, as you know, he doesn't need 50% of the vote to get the nomination, right? No, he, 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 only, he only needs a plurality, you know, he only needs a plurality. At some point, the, the, the winner-take-all system kicks in. He yep. could actually win the nomination while under indictment. It's actually possible. And the only way he gets beaten is if, I think, if, if there is a one-on-one -on -one with a candidate who can beat him. And I don't think, I think the only candidate I could think of who could possibly beat him would, could be, would be DeSantis because DeSantis is sort of younger, fresher, more energetic, smarter, um, and you know, sufficiently devious, I guess. And he one-on-one, he, -on -one, I think he could beat, he could possibly beat Trump, um, but I'm not sure he could. I'm not okay. sure. He, I mean, I'm not even sure he even try. And right. I, I mean, there's a chance. Same guy. He may not. He may not try. Why should he try? He's young. He can well, wait till he can wait four or eight years. He's, yeah. he's, he can. He can just hang out. What? what so you, I, yeah, I say. So I think it's it's entirely possible that we could see an indicted major party presidential candidate in 2024. I'm glad you think that because I think it's uh, entirely likely. Uh, and and here's my next question: is just with all of this focus on what happened this week, you know. I, we mentioned all, all the other, I just mentioned all the other ways in which the walls are closing in on Trump legally. Where's your head right now about the 1-6 committee as we sit here like, you know, after all the hearings, after what we saw, uh, after what we learned, after the job they did, do you think that, that and, and, and importantly, let me add this, all the stuff that we saw and now we, that we now have 
seen what Garland did last week on a non one six related thing, but a thing that does at least speak to some extent to how he views the prospect of going head to head against Donald Trump in the court of public opinion and and in a very in a world of of great political controversy, et cetera. You know, some people say Garland kind of tipped his hand here. Some at least psychologically, some people don't think that. I just want to know what your general view is. Where do you think? the one six stuff goes. Cause obviously in some ways that's the, I mean, it's bad as, as violating as, as, as taking potentially nuclear secrets, violating all of those laws. Oh, absolutely. That is, that is, the one six is one, a big, is still worse. a bigger deal. Yeah, it's still it's a, a bigger, bigger deal. It's a bigger deal because basically he tried to basically destroy American democracy, democracy which is right. more significant than having, having a few documents about nuclear weapons in your basement. Right. Um, I, the way I look at it is, is like this. I mean, first of all, I mean, the reason why this current, this new sequence of events this week is overshadowing January 6th is because it's so simple. This is like, let's say you're the United States attorney for the Southern District of New York and you're investigating um, the mob and you're you're trying to build a big RICO case uh, against uh, the capo de capo, the capo de capi, or however you say it. And all of a sudden... You know, it's going to take you a while to do that. It's complicated. There are lots of moving pieces, but it's very important. Lots of people were murdered. It's it was loan sharking here, illegal gambling there. And then all of a sudden you get a call one night from the NYPD saying, hey, we just busted. We just busted these people out at Kennedy Airport loading jewelry and cash from a Lufthansa flight onto the truck. And guess who was the driver? And guess who was loading up? It was the boss, the big boss, the Don. Okay. Yeah. Hey, you would be stunned, you'd, and you'd bring that case. It's like, yeah. we got him dead. We got it on camera. He's loading yeah. the truck. He's putting the cash and the bags of cash on the truck. You charge that case, yeah. even though it's it's only a tiny, tiny thing compared to the big RICO case you're working Yeah, sure. So that's the way, that's the way I could, the reason why this is so significant is, you know, it was important, highly secret confidential information, nuclear weapons. I mean, it, it's bad stuff. Um, not anything close to 1-6, as you said. Right. But it's so simple. Right. It's so simple that it puts him, and, and people go to jail for this all the time. Sure. All the time. And so he, you know, this is the, the shortest distance between Donald Trump and a federal penitentiary is now Section 793. Right. of the Espionage Act. And that's what makes this sort of also jaw-dropping. It came out of nowhere. I mean, I always thought, I've said this privately, I never, I should have tweeted it out. <laughs> say it right I, here. Go ahead. Do it, right George. Here. Do it right I here. Was, Make some I news. I said to people, you know, the thing that's going to bring this guy down is probably something we don't even know about yet. Right. Because it's just, that's just the way things happen sometimes with bad people. They finally do the one bad thing that goes too far and they get caught for it. And it may not be the worst thing that they ever did, but it's the one that was cleanest. And it, is, it's, it, it just was, it, it just, the trap door opens underneath them finally and they're gone. And this could be it. Then, yes. So I, uh, taking all that in under, under advisement, do you think, you know, at the, at the, at the end of the hearings of ones of the one six committee, everything that Liz Cheney pulled off there and, and the other members of the select committee, the evidence they brought into view, the pressure that was building on Garland on that front, uh, this, uh, decision, which I think at least at a minimum suggests that, that Garland is willing to take on a big fight with big political 
consequences if he thinks the law has been broken and if he thinks there's a case to be made. It seems to me it's hard to read it any other way, not signaling he is going to charge Trump over 1-6, but signaling that he really genuinely means it when he says, I don't care if there's a big political kerfuffle. If I think there's a reason to, to charge someone for something, I'm going to go ahead and do it because I, I just don't see how you... He knew, he knew that this was going to ignite a firestorm, searching Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. And so to me, that just speaks to a, a habit of mind, which is, yeah, I have said before that I'm all about the law. And if there's a case to make, I'm going to make the case. I know you all think I'm actually, yeah. a, I'm some kind of a wussy about, the, about politics. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I, so does the, all of that make you think, yeah, he dragged his feet a little bit on the 1-6 investigation, but we could, you know, see that coming yeah, down the road? And, I, and I, I think, I think these, this separate, incident makes it more likely that the other things will be charged because once you engage you have to engage and so i i i think it's quite possible that he's more likely to bring charges on the one six now that he's being forced in essence to bring charges i think i mean on on the the espionage act stuff so Man, okay. Let me uh, let me. I want to do one last thing because I want to. I, I, I there's so many. There's so much incredible sound in the last week, but I do want to play this. A, within a day of the Mar-a-Lago search, Trump puts out this video on 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 Trump Social on, on uh, Truth Social, whatever that fucking platform is. This is a long piece of video that I'm not going to play all of, but we're going to play a little bit of here, uh, which is a campaign video, clearly produced not in the 24 hours between the Mar-a-Lago search and when it came out. This is something they had in the can because it's it's very slick. And Trump, again, speaking to the fact that, it, that he saw the Mar-a-Lago uh, search and the FBI and the DOJ doing what they did as a political opportunity, he puts this thing out on True Social, which is essentially like the kind of video you put out when you're running for when you're running for president. So I want to play this and, and listen to it, George. I don't know if you've watched it already. If you have, we can talk about it. But if you haven't, listen to it and tell me whether you think there's anything compelling or persuasive about it, that this version of Donald Trump could actually win the presidency again. We are a nation in decline. We are a failing nation. We are a nation that has the highest inflation in over 40 years, where the stock market just finished the worst first half of a year in more than five decades. We're a nation that has weaponized its law enforcement against the opposing political party like never before. We are a nation that in many ways has become a joke. But soon we will have greatness again. It is hardworking patriots like you who are going to save our country. There is no victory we cannot have. We will never give in, we will never give up, and we will never, ever back down. What does that sound like to you? I don't know, something drug-induced? Okay, I, I mean, I well, what, what it sounds like to me is, is it's, it's it's very cultish. It's very it's the kind of thing that you know I would expect his campaign to produce. But the problem is, is he's still Donald Trump, and he's got us. He's going to wing it, and ultimately, he's going to make it all about himself. Well, let me let and me. You can't stick to the message. Well, I mean, I'm well, maybe, maybe I'm on the wrong track on what the question is. I well, the question, the question is just like it's just he sounds like Donald Trump in 2016 to me. You know, it's yeah. not, there's nothing as, as, if, as if he's never been president. So if he wasn't president, I mean, if he was president and things, he made things so much better. Why are, why are things so bad now? Do you really is, was, did, did Brandon really make things that bad, that quickly? I mean, it's crazy. 
you and I have basically the same critique of Donald Trump. You know, and I'm I'm not. I promise you, when I say what I'm about to say, I'm not trying to embroil you in some kind of like crazy controversy. I would guess that your wife listening to that would be like, "That's the kind of message that wins that could win re-election for Donald Trump." It's yeah. a, not a it's not a grievance based message. Right. It's not a message about relitigating 2020. Correct. That's that's like taking the essence of the 2016 message, right? Which is a dark apocalyptic uh, democratic yes. future that I can then I can rally my people to solve. Right. I would imagine if I were thinking about running Donald Trump's campaign in 2024, I'd listen to that and go, "Oh, I think we could put together 50 plus one." On that message, is, does that seem on that, crazy? On that, does that seem right. crazy that, to you? No, I mean that's what a sensible political consultant would do. They would tell him, "Just, just stop talking about 2020." But he can't help it. That's the problem. Right. He can't help it's, it, and it's, it's going to get worse because of all the legal trouble he's in. You think he's totally panicking right now? I think panicking. he's panicking. Yeah, absolutely. Losing his mind. Right? I think he's shitting bricks. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Asha Rangappa and George Conway for being with us. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us, rate us, review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Matthew Kaplowitz is our video editor. Megan Burney is our producer. Fana Mwangi and Zoya Soroy are our researchers. And Marshall Eisen, the one and only, is our executive producer. <laughs>